to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Today, I want to talk about courage. It comes in many forms. We don't all have it in the most obvious ways, and we certainly don't show it on a daily basis. But deep inside of most of us is a kernel of something so strong, so powerful, that in the moment of danger or stress or survival, we somehow find it and it carries us through. And somehow, sometimes, it not only saves us, but it enables us to save others. And that's the kind of courage that I want to talk about today. The kind of courage that is there when we really need it. Every generation faces a life-altering experience of some kind, an experience that changes their perceptions of life as they have known it, and it helps them to determine what will define their lives in the future. And every generation since the early 20th century not only has a defining moment, it even has a name. So the GI generation was the generation of Americans born in the early years after the turn of the century in 1900. These Americans had two defining events in their lives. World War I, which occurred between 1914 and 1918, and the Spanish flu that struck in 1918 while the war was still going on. It affected some 500 million people around the world and it killed more than 50 million. Then there was the silent generation. It was made up of people who were born after the war, after the Great War, as they called it then. Only for them, it was the Great Depression. And for those who lived in the Midwest, it was the Dust Bowl. When the drought was so severe that everything turned to dust, nothing could grow, and many people just left their farms and struck out for something better. Then came the people they called the greatest generation, who were born after the Depression. For them, the defining event was World War II, and they were named for their bravery in the face of two monstrous enemies in Europe and Japan. In that war, the United States forces lost more than 400,000 men and women, including more than 14,000 prisoners of war who died in captivity in Europe and Japan. That war also killed an estimated 50 to 100 million people on three continents. That included 6 million Jews and another 6 million people, including Romanis, gays, Catholics, mentally challenged, and any other minority that Hitler chose to annihilate through his systematic murder of innocents in a network of concentration camps throughout Europe. That war left a lasting scar of immeasurable proportions on the survivors. I'll talk more about this generation in a little bit, but suffice it to say that this generation has continued to serve as a reminder of how their powerful courage set the stage for the outcome of that war. And then came the baby boomers who were born in the years after the war. And for them, it was the Cold War that shaped their lives. The duck and cover drills at schools, under their desks, or in open hallways. The air raid shelters in the subways. And just under the surface, the silent fear of a nuclear attack from our arch enemy, 
the Soviet Union. For Generation X, who were the next in line, it was the civil rights movement that tried to level the playing field for black Americans by forcing the federal government and then the individual states to pass laws that would give equal opportunity to people of color in schools and jobs and housing and public accommodations. Next came the millennials who were born between 1980 and the late 1990s. And for them, the defining moment was 9-11 and the always lingering fear of another terrorist attack. This was also the beginning of the entitled generation. These kids were taught that everyone is equal and that everyone should get a prize just for showing up and participating. For them, there were no winners and there were no losers, just everybody. And they were all the same. Humanity was the common equalizer. So there were no exceptional students and there were no underachievers. They were all the same and they all deserved equal opportunity, which meant there should be no preferential educational opportunities for the gifted because all students had equal opportunities. It was a time when children began demanding designer jeans and sneakers and parents were more than willing if they could afford it to gratify their every wish. There was also a growing awareness, once again, of the ethnic differences that divide us. Only a few years after the civil rights movement, there was a new movement that began to divide us all over again. And now for the Z generation born between 1990 and 2010, it is the coronavirus, COVID-19, that colors their lives and will help to shape their futures. But here's the question, and it's a question for the last generation, the Z generation. In fact, it's a series of questions. What will you learn from this experience from COVID-19? From the quarantine and the social distancing and the way this virus is different for different people, the way it's a mild flu-like illness for some and a nasty killer for others, the way it has different symptoms for different people and how it has new symptoms that keep showing up. How will this affect your view of the world in the future? Do you even know that about a hundred years ago there was another global pandemic, not unlike this one? And that one was called the Spanish flu. And it is thought to have killed between 50 and 100 million people around the world. And that it came in three waves. And that the second wave was the most deadly. But the one that followed was also terrible. And if you know about the Spanish flu, have you considered that what we might learn from that pandemic might also give us some clues about this one? And a better understanding about what we're really up against and what we need to do? And here's another question, and it's an important one. Have you given any thought as to whether the balance that we are being asked to make between personal liberty and the safety of America is a valid one? There are many Americans who say that it is too much to ask people to stay locked in their homes, to lose their jobs and their livelihoods for the sake of the common good. How do you feel about that? I know many people who tell me that we have to sacrifice our freedoms in order to keep other people safe, which by the way, will keep ourselves safe as well. But when we are required to sacrifice our personal freedoms, 
to leave our homes, to support our families, to exercise those freedoms of speech and assembly and worship that are protected by the Constitution. Is that too much to demand? And if we give up our freedoms for the greater good, will we ever get them back, even after this pandemic subsides in a couple of years? What have we learned from history? What will we learn from this? I'm asking these questions because I think it is essential that we are all aware of our history and how it might influence the crises that come upon us suddenly, as this one did, in our future, without warning, but with incredibly powerful consequences. I find the inner struggle between wanting to do whatever is necessary to contain this monster on the one hand, and the need for people to go back to work so they can support their families on the other, as a fundamental conflict of opposing needs. How can we rationalize the conflict and retain an iota of sanity in these crazy times? I see the demonstrators with their signs. I need to go back to work. And I need a haircut, as if they carried the same weight. There is an argument to be made for quarantine and social distancing. And there is an equally compelling argument for reopening the economy and getting back to work. I think the president has found a fair and reasonable compromise between the two. But because no one really knows how this is going to play out, because we really don't know the full scope of what we are dealing with, we also don't know the answer to the basic question. What is the right thing to do? The only answer, the only answer that we really have, is that we don't know. Here's what we do know. This is, and it seems to be pretty close to certain, a virus that was created in a virology lab from a coronavirus carried by a bat that is found in southern China. And that this virus has been manipulated in the lab and several components have been added to it to make it more contagious, more virulent, better able to mutate quickly, and somehow it presents different symptoms in different patients. Whatever was done to this virus in the lab has made it, more than anything, unpredictable. Several scientific studies have found that in the short time it has been around, this virus has already mutated more than 30 times. And every time it mutates, it poses new challenges to those who are trying to find the tests and the cures and the vaccines to knock it out. What we're pretty well convinced of, and even the government is coming around to admitting it, COVID-19 originated and then escaped into China from the Wuhan Virology Laboratory and then was intentionally released to the rest of the world. This is a long and complicated story, but the short version is that even though the Chinese government knew that they had a virus that was exploding in central China, they allowed millions of Chinese citizens to travel abroad in January, carrying the virus with them and spreading it wherever they went. And more than that, we know that the Chinese government refused to reveal the extent of the epidemic in China. In fact, they covered it up, and they lied about the numbers of their sick and dead. They punished the doctors who tried to warn their colleagues about the virus, and they punished those who simply wrote about the virus on social media. Some people simply disappeared, and the government refused to allow American scientists into China to examine the virus and to try to find ways to limit its devastating impact on humanity.
And then the Chinese government sent the military into the Wuhan Virology Lab to destroy the evidence. This is what we know. And then there is something else. They also enlisted the help of the director of the World Health Organization, Tedros, who was complicit in China's effort to hide their epidemic and its source. He too lied about everything. He told the world that the virus couldn't transfer from human to human, long after they knew it could. He told us in America that the chances of a serious epidemic here was low, and he refused to call the rapid spread around the world a pandemic until long after it was so obvious that he could no longer deny it. In the end, the epidemic, which could have been contained early on, became a pandemic, which could not be contained at all. As of this week, at least 212 countries have reported confirmed cases of COVID-19. More than three and a half million people have been infected around the world, and more than a quarter of a million have died. The most that any country has been able to do is to try to limit its impact by imposing such things as quarantines, shutting down air traffic, closing their borders, providing medical care and comfort, and praying. They could also work to develop a test to identify the virus, a cure, and a vaccine. Scientists in many countries are hard at work to do just that. But that may take months or even years. And in the meantime, millions of people will get sick and far too many will die waiting. There was courage underneath all of this outrage. It was the raw courage of everyday people like Dr. Li Wenliang, the Chinese ophthalmologist at Wuhan Central Hospital, who saw something that looked to him like a new SARS-like virus, only much more powerful, and at the risk of his own life, tried to warn the world about it. Dr. Li risked his position at the Wuhan Central Hospital, and perhaps much more, by reporting the deadly new SARS-like virus to seven of his colleagues using Weibo, a social media platform that is very popular in China. But for his trouble, all eight physicians were called to the police and reprimanded for, quote, posting false information on the internet, unquote. It could have been far worse. And for Dr. Lee, it got as bad as it possibly could. The hospital posted this notice on February 7th. Quote, Ophthalmologist Li Wenliang of our hospital, who was unfortunately infected during the fight against the pneumonia epidemic of the new coronavirus infection, failed after all efforts and died at 2.58 on February 7, 2020. Unquote. Prior to his death, Lee had told the New York Times in a text message, quote, it would have been a lot better if Chinese officials had revealed the epidemic earlier. He said, there should be a lot more openness and transparency, unquote. You know, his death on February 7th came just one month after China claimed that only 27 people were infected with the virus in China. But now, on February 7th, China claimed that 31,000 people had been confirmed to have the virus and 63 people had already died from it. But by that time, people were reported to be dropping dead in the streets 
The hospitals were jammed with people seeking medical help, and China finally admitted to having an epidemic. And by then, something else was happening. The virus was spreading beyond the boundaries of China. Two people outside of China had already contracted the virus and died, one in the Philippines and one in Hong Kong. And the virus had already been confirmed in 24 countries. It seems that people who tell the truth about the virus in China are taking a great risk. When Dr. Li recognized what he believed was a variation of the SARS virus, he tried to warn his colleagues and then the world, and he paid the price. His was the face of courage. Now it's time to take a short break, and when I come back, I have some stories to tell you about the kind of courage we could all use a little more of these days. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot slash sleep. Before the break, I was talking about the generations of Americans, each of whom had a life-changing crisis to deal with and overcome. Today's generation has the coronavirus, COVID-19. I first heard about this virus when I read an article in the South China Morning Post, which is a daily news media outlet in Hong Kong. As it turns out, Hong Kong was one of the first places outside of mainland China to have to deal with the virus, which at the time was a mystery. So on January 15, 2020, I reported to you about something that I had just read about an article that had caught my eye. Here's what I said. Authorities are concerned about the possible spread of a mysterious infectious disease that they think may have been brought back to Hong Kong by visitors to the city of Wuhan, which is near Shanghai and only 575 miles from Hong Kong. 44 people in Wuhan have shown signs of this infection so far. That's what the article said. The most common symptoms of this mysterious disease had been fever, shortness of breath, and lung infection, and it has only impacted a small number of cases, according to Chinese authorities. The latest cases in Hong Kong are three people between the ages of 4 and 50 years old, all three of these people had been to Wuhan in the past two weeks and had fever and respiratory infection. Three Hong Kongers who were taken ill after returning from the mainland Chinese city of Wuhan had recovered considerably and were no longer showing fever symptoms, according to health officials in Hong Kong. Two of them had already been discharged from the hospital 
and no serious pneumonia cases linked to the Wuhan outbreak had been reported in Hong Kong so far. None of the three had visited the seafood market in Wuhan, but Hong Kong health officials are taking no chances and unveiled new preventative measures, including daily announcements of any suspected cases, as well as installing infrared sensors at the city's international airports to screen all travelers coming from Wuhan. People who had visited wet markets in Wuhan in the past 14 days and then traveled to Hong Kong will be quarantined in public hospitals if they develop symptoms of respiratory infections and fever, authorities said. Unquote. I went on to say the people of Hong Kong remember the SARS epidemic in 2003. Hong Kong was also hit very hard by bird flu in 1997 and swine flu in 2009. So they were taking this new mysterious virus very seriously, and with good reason. The first story in Hong Kong came out in December 31st, before I heard about it, when China first admitted publicly that they had a bit of a problem. They minimized it and the number of people infected. On January 2nd, for example, the Chinese reporting, as I said before, that 27 people in Wuhan were infected with the disease. That was a huge underreporting on the part of the Chinese. We now know that the virus was released at the latest, sometime in mid-November, if not earlier. And by the beginning of January, the number of people infected in Wuhan, a city of 11 million people at the time, would have been in the thousands. Now, I want to take that a little further and talk about how we react to crises and what it takes to get through them. I think one of the most common operative words throughout this pandemic has been stress. It is difficult enough to face the threat of the unknown, and that certainly describes the virus that has attacked the world and killed over a quarter of a million people worldwide. When we all had to face weeks of quarantine without work and many of us without a paycheck, that was stressful to say the least. Not knowing if we were sick, if we would get sick, or even if we would die. And being confined in the small space of home with our partners, our children, for weeks on end without any end in sight. For many, that was terribly stressful. Some responded to the stress with anger and even violence against their own families. Some found the stress unbearable and committed suicide under the strain. And yet, other families, well, they made it work. They brought their creativity to bear. They homeschooled. They created new games to ease the stress of long days together without relief. They worked together on family projects and made the time they were spending together mean something. Their communities also helped. They visited each other from their balconies, their windows, by meeting with friends and families through computer applications like Zoom by making music together even though they were separated. It even brought some families together. The stories are endless, stories of desperation and despair, and stories of joy and of giving, of overcoming the adversity of unnatural quarantine with conscious acts of kindness and community. These are the stories of commitment to life and of personal courage. And these are the stories I want to tell you now. They're not all about the virus. In fact, some of them have nothing to do with our current situation. But they are all about human spirit 
and they are a testimony to the fact that we do have the ability to rise above even the worst and most dangerous experience to help our neighbors, to hold on to the love and the kindness that is part of who we are and who we want to be. In Italy, for example, where for many weeks the rocketing number of confirmed cases and the rising death toll were at the top of the news all around the world. It was a terrifying time for the people in northern Italy, and yet, on March 13, 2020, at a time when 60 million people, three-quarters of the population, were locked down because of the coronavirus, thousands of people in Rome, Milan, and Naples, among others, organized a flash mob for noon that day. And when noon came around, people came out on their balconies and they began to sing. They sang Italy's national anthem and they shouted, Viva l'Italia! or Long Live Italy. They sang songs about their country and how it would triumph. And those who couldn't sing banged pots and pans. And the few cars that were on the streets honked their horns. People waved banners in the national flag of Italy. One participant in Rome said, My street came alive that day. It was a euphoric moment. And this was at a time when Italy's toll of confirmed cases and the number of dead was already higher than any other country in the world outside of China, with more than 12,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and 827 deaths and the numbers were still rising rapidly. But on this afternoon, here were the people of Italy celebrating life and thumbing their noses at the terror that was assailing them. This was another face of courage. And then there's the courage of an entire generation. I talked about the generations before. I mentioned the greatest generation the generation that went to war in Europe and the Pacific, the generation that fought and died on Normandy Beach and Iwo Jima. Their stories are also worth hearing and remembering. On June 6, 1944, 150,000 Allied soldiers stormed the beach at Normandy, France, and more than 4,400 of them died there that day. But the assault against the Germans succeeded because of the raw courage and determination of these soldiers. These men captured all five Normandy beaches by dusk that day. That was the courage of the greatest generation. And on the other side of the world, there was a fight for the island of Iwo Jima, which lay just 760 miles south of Tokyo. It was a strategic island that the Americans needed to capture. The battle lasted from February 19th to March 6th, 1945. And 6,800 U.S. sailors and Marines died in the fight for that island. An additional 19,200 were wounded. Nearly 19,000 Japanese soldiers died as well. But after that battle, when the island was secure, it served as an emergency landing site and more than 2,200 B-29 bombers landed there and saved the lives of 24,000 U.S. airmen. The young men of the greatest generation 
fought and died in a fight against the enemy that attacked our fleet in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and killed more than 2,400 American sailors in that one deadly attack. The young men who died on the beaches of Normandy and on the sand dunes of Iwo Jima showed a kind of courage we rarely see today. They fought for a country they believed in and were ready to die for, to keep it safe and free. That, too, was the face of courage. And today, in these days of the new coronavirus, when whole cities are shut down, our attention is focused on the doctors and nurses, the orderlies, the interns, the custodians who clean the hospital floors, and the people in the laundry and the kitchens in hospitals all around the world. These are the people who continue to show up for work each day with amazing commitment to their professions, to their jobs, and to the people in their care. They are also the face of courage, and their courage should be an inspiration to us all. You know, courage often shows up in unlikely places and in the most unlikely people. Do you remember my friend Greg the Storyteller? He's been on my show before from time to time, and I've asked him to join me today to tell a story about a different kind of courage, the kind that shows up when you least expect it, from a person you would never take for a hero, but at a time when you need it the most. Hi, I'm Greg, the storyteller, and today I'd like to tell you a story from years ago and far away that tells us something about courage. Courage can take many forms. Sometimes courage is big and flashy, the hero who swoops in to save the day. Sometimes courage can be quiet, a tired person at the end of the day who sees something wrong or unfair and quietly takes a stand. Sometimes courage is simply getting up every morning with a difficult situation facing you and saying, today I'll try again. I believe that courage can be learned. You can train yourself to be brave. I also believe that courage can be found in the unlikeliest of places. Not a big, muscly figure in a cape, but a little person who does what's needed when it matters the most. Let's talk about some of those. This story goes back to 1989, when I was somewhat younger than I am today, and I had just finished a three-year stint in the Israeli army. I had been a military policeman, serving in Jerusalem, and I was starting a bright new life as a civilian with an honorable discharge. I had a new job, a new girlfriend, a spot in a good college in the fall. Life was good. My time in the Israeli military police is behind me, and I had no intention of looking back. Then, disaster struck, and I had to look back. A terrorist had just carried out an attack on an intercity bus full of passengers. On the road from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, at a strategic spot where the highway edges close to a ravine, this young murderer had been standing in wait near the driver. At the right moment, he shouted, Allahu Akbar, wrestled the wheel away from the driver, and sent the bus over the edge. The crash was horrific. Sixteen people died, including some Americans. Many more were wounded. One of the people on that bus was an Israeli corporal named Tova Maimon. She was a military policewoman who served in Jerusalem. She'd started her service there a few months before I left. I helped to train her. I liked her. She was a sweet redhead with freckles who never had an unkind word to say about anybody. 
I was horrified to read her name in the newspaper as someone injured in the attack who was courageously fighting for her life. I visited her parents in the hospital. Tova was still in a coma, so I couldn't see her, but I could sit with her mother. We consoled each other. We reassured each other that Tova was strong and that she would pull through. She didn't. Tova fought valiantly for two weeks, but in the end, she succumbed to her injuries. She was 19 years old. Her death hit me hard. I attended her funeral. I hated the fact that I was wearing civilian clothes. Tova's comrades-in-arms, who, until a few months earlier, had shared barracks and jokes and patrols with me, they were all there, and they didn't give me a second glance. They were crying their eyes out for Tova as they carried her coffin, draped with the Israeli flag, and buried her with full military honors. It was a horrible day, and was made all the more horrible by knowing with absolute certainty that this terrorist attack would happen again. It had been a simple attack and devastatingly effective. It was a foregone conclusion that it would be tried again. Sure enough, within a week or two, somebody else tried it. The same bus line, the same route, the same ravine. He was going to do the same thing. He was going to stand near the driver, wait for the right moment as the bus neared the edge of the ravine, and he was going to send them over the edge. But remember, we spoke of courage in unlikely places. On this bus, sitting up front, was an elderly grandfather. He had read the news, and he knew about Tova Maimon's bus. And he was alert and ready for trouble. And so it was that when the young would-be murderer grabbed the wheel, the grandfather grabbed him between the legs and said the Hebrew equivalent of, no, you don't either. Simple and devastatingly effective. The grandfather grabbed the terrorist where it hurt and squeezed hard and the scream of Allahu Akbar became a different sort of scream altogether. Within moments, other passengers leapt to their feet and helped out. Together, they detained the terrorist until the bus driver could get to a police station and turn him in. But the courageous actions of the grandfather and his quick thinking undoubtedly saved many lives that day. I know about this because the grandfather was interviewed at length that day on the evening news. There he was, an elderly man, not even five feet tall, with gray hair and long gray sidelocks. He was asked to explain what he had done. He grinned broadly and explained in detail with helpful gestures. So, when I think of courage, I think of little Tova, who even in a coma fought to stay alive as long as she could. Every day she tried again until she simply couldn't anymore. But I also think of that little grandfather, who had the guts to take on a terrorist twice his size, empty-handed, and who prevailed and saved a lot of lives and lived to tell the tale on national TV with a smile. That's courage. When they needed it, they had it. And so can you. Remember, courage can be learned. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Greg. That's a story we're likely to remember for quite a while. And it's a powerful message that resonates with even the weakest among us, that there is always that spark that refuses to accept despots and terrorists when they decide to take away our choices and destroy our lives. Now it's time for me to take another short break. And when I come back, I want to talk about the courage that we will need 
in order to face the future after this pandemic is over. I'll be right back. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. We've been talking about courage as a big deal. The kind of courage that deals with life and death issues, that tackles major problems, even when they are dangerous and may be life-threatening. But there's another kind of courage the kind that is required when we're facing the personal life decisions that may change the direction or the quality of our lives. Decisions of that kind take a different kind of courage. It takes a a quiet kind of courage that is ready to accept a new life-changing situation and make it work. When my husband called me one day from work about 10 years ago, and told me he'd been offered a new job to another part of the country, a place I'd never been to, no less lived in, he asked me if I was okay with that. Was I? We had a nice enough house in a nice community where we had friends and where family was nearby. And we had both lived in the area for more than two decades, and it was home. Was I okay with moving away to a place I'd never been, far away from family and friends? It was a tough decision, but I made it in between heartbeats. It was what he wanted, and I chose to consider it a new adventure. As I once heard someone say, I decided to love it. So he went first, and I packed up the house, and after the movers left, I packed up the van with my dog, two cats, and all the stuff the movers left behind, and I drove to our new home, which I had never seen. Some would say that that took courage, maybe. But if it did, that courage came from a place I didn't even know about, deep inside wherever courage lives. The point is this. You don't have to wear a cape and be a superhero, as Greg said, to have the kind of courage that can accept change and make it work for you, or that can enable you to face down a fear 
so that you can move on to a new experience, a new job, a new life. And that brings me to a situation that we are all facing here in America. We have two potentially life-changing events, circumstances, happening in our lives today. The virus, of course, right here and now, and the presidential elections in November. Either or both are certainly going to have an impact on our lives going forward. We've talked about both the presidential elections and the virus separately. And now they're connected because the fight against COVID-19 has become political. The sides have been drawn and the battle has begun. This is a terrible thing. The battle against the virus is against all of us. And if there is one subject that should bring us together, this is it. Only it hasn't brought us together, it has divided us more than ever. The Never Trumpers have armed themselves with a whole dictionary of vile names for our president. They accuse him of delaying aid to the victims of the virus, of belittling the threat that the virus posed, even before we had any cases of it in the United States, even though the World Health Organization assured him that the threat was low. And later, they accused him of suggesting poisonous ways to treat it, and of promoting a drug in which he had a financial interest and dozens of other things, all of which were false or distorted. But it was easier and more fruitful politically to originate the falsehood and the distortion and then promote it than to actually fact-check and state the truth. And just like President Trump uses Twitter to vent, the never-Trumpers have made an art form out of it. They vent and then they feed each other's diatribes filled with curses and vile language that serve no purpose other than to inflame. And their words are reflections of the less vile but no less vindictive words of their Democrat congressmen, whom they sent to Washington, who now see that their prime mission is the destruction of the president. Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, Chuck Schumer, and so many more spend their time plotting new ways to bring down the president. And so, the divisions in America continue to grow. So here's another question. How are we supposed to teach our children about governance as it was envisioned by the Founding Fathers when all they see are the verbal attacks on social media and television? We are so far from where we began. Do our children now believe that this is how it is supposed to be? Over the last year, I've talked a lot about the poor quality of the education that our kids are getting in the public schools. This may sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm really not. It's all connected. Public education has taught our children about things like sexual identity, intersectionality, about the importance of showing up, and the destructive nature of competition. And somewhere along the way, it taught them to feel entitled. It taught them if they were members of a minority, if they were children of color, if they were gay or trans, if they were illegal immigrants or what the politically correct call undocumented, they were somehow entitled to more than others. And if they lived in states like California or New York, they found out that this was absolutely true. They were more entitled. But they also learned that if they complained enough, if they whined enough or stamped their feet enough, 
they would somehow prevail and get their way. They were also taught that the very fact that they were part of a small minority gave them more power than they would otherwise have, and they were taught to use that power to get more than they were entitled to. So when, for example, transgender males demanded tampon machines in the men's room, and in some places got it, even though they were probably representing less than 1% of the population, they took that as a victory over the new enemy, the entitled white male. What our public educational system has failed to teach our children is how to function in the real world where things are frequently not fair, where if you don't compete, you generally lose. And if you can't think critically, you may not be able to solve the major life problems that you will face as an adult. They don't learn history or geography or civics anymore. They don't know how the world works or why. And if they don't know how we got to where we are, in other words, by learning about history and government, how can we expect them to understand what their own role should be in shaping the future of our country or even of their own lives? If our children don't learn history, the history of America, if they don't study the Constitution and the way our government is supposed to work, and if they don't know anything about the history of the world, then how is the next generation going to know anything about how to fight for liberty when it is threatened as it is now? We've already seen how the idea of socialism seems so attractive to an entire generation, what they call the Z generation. They have no idea about the history of socialism and the damage it has done to the people who have been forced to live under it. They seem to just like the idea of free stuff. The campaign of Bernie Sanders was a spectacular example of how the lack of historical awareness by the mass of his young followers that carried him on a wave of expectation, how that failed. They came out in great numbers wherever he appeared, and his audiences grew larger and larger. But his following collapsed when the primaries came around because as much as they loved him, they didn't apparently see the importance of coming out to vote, and they stayed home in droves. So he is no longer on the ballot, and he has now endorsed Joe Biden for the office that he wanted so badly. And this is the penalty of not seeing the necessity of teaching our children their own history and what they used to call civics, where students were taught how local and state government works. So even as we fight off this pandemic, we also face one of the most important elections of our lives. It's one that will decide the future in which our country will go for generations and it very well may change the face of America forever. So what is it about this upcoming election that is so pivotal? On the one hand, we have President Trump, who has shown that he can charge up the economy through well-negotiated trade deals and tax reform, that he can protect our borders, and that he can act swiftly in the face of a crisis. 
If he wins the next election in November, he will have the opportunity to continue to lead the recovery from COVID-19 and renew the economy as he has proven he can. On the other hand, the most compelling reason that Joe Biden is wrong for the country is that the current state of his mind may be incapable of handling the huge workload and decision-making requirements of the presidency. He frequently seems confused, unable to answer the simplest questions, unable to remember key dates, events, and names. And in a recent commercial, his wife did all the talking while he just stood there and smiled. It was awkward, to say the least, unless she's the one running for president. If that were all there were, it would be enough. But there's more. Biden actually did the very thing that Democrats accused President Trump of doing during his impeachment hearings. They claimed that President Trump abused his office by demanding a quid pro quo from Ukraine's President Zelensky. That charge proved to be fallacious. It was just wrong. It never happened. The same can't be said of Biden. Not only was Biden guilty of demanding a quid pro quo, his account of it was recorded for posterity when he bragged about it during an appearance at a Council on Foreign Affairs event. He was talking about his efforts to get Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin fired because he was about to investigate Biden's son, Hunter Biden. The whole story revolved around Hunter Biden's lucrative arrangement with Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company that was paying him $50,000 a month to sit on its board, although he had no knowledge or experience in the energy industry. Here's what Joe Biden said, quote, I said, nah, I'm not going to, or we're not going to give you a billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. President said, I said, call him. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here in, I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired and they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Hmm. Solid meaning someone who wouldn't investigate the lucrative arrangement which Hunter Biden had with Burisma. In other words, Biden used his influence as vice president to force a foreign power to do what he wanted in order to protect his son. That was illegal in the first place, but it was actually only one of several times when Biden used his influence as vice president to enrich his family. The short form of all this is that Joe Biden is as crooked as he can be and has no business in the Oval Office. Now, if Joe Biden is really such a liability, why has the Democrat Party rallied around to support him as their candidate? Can it be that they've decided that rather than run a strong candidate, they'll put somebody in office whom they can totally manipulate? Honestly, that's the only answer I can come up with. I visited Joe Biden's campaign website. Honestly, it's a mess. It's a totally confused recipe for the nanny state. His platform covers 35 agenda items and each one has the heading Biden Plan 4. And the website singles out topics like LGBTQ+, Catholics, students, Black Latinos, Asian American and Pacific Islanders, and Jewish communities in that order. Under the Jewish community, Biden takes credit for taking 
historic steps to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, unquote, and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, quote, that prevented a nuclear-armed Iran, unquote. I'm not sure why those are located under the Jewish community, but there you have it. Regarding the Green New Deal, Biden's website claims that he believes the Green New Deal is a, quote, crucial framework for meeting the climate challenges we face. In short, his platform, as it appears on his website, is a mishmash of scrambled, half-baked ideas that is reflective of his own apparently confused state of mind. Biden's mental confusion, his corruption, his willingness to take credit for things he didn't do, and his bragging about the illegal things that he did do are all good reasons why Biden should never sit in the Oval Office. Which brings me back to my original point. This upcoming election will be a defining point in American history. The choice is clear. If Trump is reelected, we know what we can expect over the next four years. A gradual end to the pandemic, which is currently consuming our attention, a lot of inappropriate tweets that mean very little in the overall scheme of things as the economy begins to grow again and steadily produces the jobs and the revenues that will charge America up again, strong trade deals with our trading partners, a powerful response to China and the World Health Organization for their roles in infecting the world, and a strong military that will protect our nation in the face of enemy states like Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia. On the other hand, if Joe Biden is elected, we can reasonably expect a different scenario for our country. The growth of the nanny state is a given. The left-leaning members of the party will push for as much control as they can get over health care, taxes, education, states' autonomy, immigration, and much more. Their platforms are clear about the benefits of socialism at the taxpayer's expense which is why they will raise taxes as they have promised. Their dream of a Green New Deal will become a nightmare, draining our treasury of its last dollars and putting the country into catastrophic debt from which it will be impossible to ever recover. The states will lose whatever power they still have to the federal government, and the American people will mourn the loss of the freedoms that were once guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. The legacy of our founding fathers will be gone. So this will be the most important election of our lifetime. And it comes at a time of crisis when the nation is deeply divided and the response to the coronavirus has already taken many of our freedoms away. This is the moment when Americans must find their courage and stand up against the wave of anti-American socialism that has taken over the Democrat Party. There will never be a more important election than the one we will have this year. It will either prove the success of the great American experiment, or it will be the first step in the collapse of the American dream. Well, the clock is ticking, and we are out of time. Thank you for joining me today. Have a good week. A safe week. Stay well and God bless. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman and this has been the Friedman Report. <laughs>